Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Let's pray. Avinu Sheva Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Thank you so much for this um, precious day, Lord, when you are just um, pouring out your Ruach, your spirit, on, uh, on this community and on, on Breno and Rachel and on their families and, their, and just on all the blessings, Lord, all of your Berachot that you pour out on, from heaven onto us. And we ask that you would... Um, Bless this time as we learn more about you, Lord. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach Adonai. Amen. Well, it's wonderful to see all of you, all of you. And I want to thank you for all of your prayers over this past year. And uh, I want you to know that our family is doing well in the Dallas area. And that I've been enjoying my work at the King's University where I'm serving as the uh, director of the Messianic Jewish Studies Program. And if you have an interest in pursuing a degree with a concentration in Messianic Jewish Studies, and you would like to do do it online and at an accredited institution, you should check out our program at www.tku.edu. I'm very proud of what we are building, and I hope that you are proud of it too. And I say this because I could not have made the strides that I made this year without your prayers and also without all of the experiences that I had here at Tikvat Israel that helped to prepare me and, and to shape me for the work that I'm presently doing. You sent me out, and now the blessing is returning to you in the form of this Messianic Jewish Studies program. This is a, a challenging weekend for many of us because on Thursday morning, Isaac Farouz passed away. And on Saturday afternoon, we will be celebrating Breno and Rachel's wedding. How do we navigate the conflicting and roller coaster like emotions that we have at a time like this? Should we be sad or happy or both or neither, if that is possible? I don't have all the answers to this question, but our rabbis many centuries ago dealt with a similar question. And the conclusion that they reached provides us with some possible direction. More than a thousand years ago, an issue arose in the Jewish world over what to do when a funeral procession was coming down one road and a wedding procession was coming down another road. And the two processions met at the same intersection. The question is, which procession gives way to the other? Which one goes first? What do you think the rabbis decided? Who here thinks that the wedding procession 
is supposed to give way to the funeral procession. Okay? And who thinks that the funeral procession is supposed to give way to the wedding procession? Okay, it looks like there are a lot of people who aren't sure what to think about this. <laughs> Would you like to know what the rabbis decided? All right. Well, drum roll, please. They, <laughs> they decided that the funeral procession gives way to the wedding procession. In the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate 17a, we are told a funeral procession makes way for a bridal procession. And both of them make way for the king of Israel. What is the reason that our rabbis made the decision that a funeral procession makes way for a wedding procession? It is because life always takes precedence over death. Let me say that again. Life always takes precedence over death. Does that mean that we should not mourn? Of course not. We mourn deeply because we miss Isaac. He is our beloved brother who is no longer with us. But while we are mourning Isaac's absence and consoling his family, David and Sandy, we take time to rejoice over this happy couple that is about to break the glass under the chuppah. Would Isaac have minded if we temper our mourning with gladness? I don't think so one bit. And it looks like Sandy doesn't think so either. Why do I say that? It's because Isaac is with the Lord right now. And with his own kala, his bride, whom he has been waiting to see and embrace for many, many years. Isaac is a happy soul. We can be happy for Isaac, even as I'm sure Isaac is happy for Breno and Rachel. To quote the Nishmat prayer, which is part of our liturgy and according to Jewish tradition, interestingly, was written by Shimon Kepha, the Apostle Peter. The soul of every living being shall bless your name, O Lord, our God. And so, let us bless God's name this Shabbat morning. And this whole weekend, even as I'm sure that Isaac is blessing God's name right now in paradise. Amen? Amen. And on this note of blessing God's name, I would like to talk with you this morning about the blessing of a Jewish wedding. And I have three points. <laughs> First, God is a matchmaker. Second, do you want to hear about some really cool customs? And third, 
you will never be the same again. Let's begin with number one. God is a matchmaker. The Midrash tells us that many, many centuries ago, a Roman matron once asked Rabbi Yossi ben Chalafta, now that God has finished creating the universe, what does he do? The rabbi replied that God now makes matches, bringing couples together so that they can marry each other. Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan tells us that, quote, on the day that a person is conceived, all the forces of providence. Are you listening to this, Andrew? I just heard Andrew is engaged. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. I didn't realize it was a secret. Sorry. <laughs> Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan tells us that on the day that a person is conceived, all the forces of providence are set into motion. Chains of events that will lead to his or her eventual marriage. The Talmud teaches that at this time, at the moment of conception... It is announced on high in heaven, the daughter of this man shall be with that man. Now, personally and respectfully, I would beg to differ with Rabbi Kaplan. I think that even before conception, the Lord in his mind planned that I would marry Harumi. And from the time that I was a child, he shaped my interests and desires so that they led in one direction, straight to Harumi. And I had to go to the ends of the earth to meet my beshert, my destiny. I first met Harumi over the phone. Harumi had won a Rotary Scholarship to study in the United States for a year and thought that it would be a great idea if she could attend a messianic synagogue while doing her study abroad. It was 1987, so it was pre-internet days. Remember those days? How did one find a messianic synagogue in 1987? Moreover, there were no yellow pages in Japan. Harumi heard that there was a Messianic Jew named Dabide-san who was studying at her church's seminary in Kyoto, and that his father was a Messianic rabbi who led a congregation in the United States. So she asked her pastor if she knew where my father's congregation was, but the pastor didn't know, so the pastor said, talk with the dean of the seminary. Maybe he knows. So Harumi contacted the dean of the seminary. But the dean of the seminary said, I don't know where, where um, Dabide's father's congregation is. Talk with his landlady. 
So Harumi called my landlady, Mrs. Ozaki. And uh, she asked Mrs. Ozaki if she knew where my father's congregation was. And Mrs. Ozaki said she didn't know. So she said, here, talk with David yourself and ask him. And Mrs. Ozaki handed the phone to me. Can you hear the angels singing, hallelujah? (laughs) The first time I heard Harumi's voice, something awoke in my soul. A door opened in my heart. That evening, we spoke for hours. In the weeks that followed, I heard her voice again and again and again, because I kept calling her (laughs) over the phone. And the more I heard her voice, the more I wanted to meet her in person. And the more I met her in person, the more I loved her and wanted to have her all to myself and to live the rest of my life with her. I knew that she was my beshert, my destiny, my match made in heaven. Breno and Rachel, you are very blessed because you have found your match made in heaven. Treasure one another and know that not everyone finds their beshert in this lifetime. It is God's gift to you, one of the greatest of all gifts. And this brings us to my second point. Do you want to hear about some really cool customs? Do you? (laughs) All right. Well, I'll tell you. Harumi and I were married about almost 28 years ago at Melech Yisrael Messianic Jewish Congregation in Toronto, Canada. It's a very long and romantic story because Harumi's family was so opposed to our getting married, we decided to internationally elope. Now, I'm not recommending this to anyone here, but that is the truth and the whole truth of what happened. But we internationally eloped with my, fam- with my family's full support. And we had only a few days to plan our wedding. But even with only a few days of preparation, we prioritized having a Jewish wedding. And we were blessed because of this. There were some fascinating and deeply meaningful customs that surround the Jewish wedding ceremony. Let me share a few of them with all of us. One custom is for the groom, the chatan, on the day of his wedding, to undo any knots in his clothing. This includes even untying his shoes. Why does the groom do this? The idea is that since he is about to tie the knot, He should not be bound in any other way. Of course, this leads to some grooms literally falling head over heels in love with their kalas. 
Brano, I think a lot of people are going to be looking at your shoes tomorrow afternoon. It is also a tradition for the groom not to have anything in his pockets on the day of his wedding. As a symbol that the bride is willing to marry him for who he is and not for what he has. The groom is like Adam, who did not have any private possessions when he was given in marriage to Chava, to Eve. Rachel, will you take Breno for who he is and not for what he has? We will find out tomorrow. (laughs) Then there is the Jewish wedding ceremony itself. It begins when the rabbi calls the groom to the chuppah, the wedding canopy, with the words, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why does the groom go first? The custom is rooted in the very first wedding ceremony. After God created Adam and Eve, The Torah tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, that God took Eve and, quote, brought her to Adam, unquote. Eve came to Adam. Therefore, a bride comes to her groom. It is traditional for the groom to begin his march to the chuppah by placing his right foot first. Why the right foot? The idea here is that he starts out his marriage. You got it. (laughs) Then the rabbi calls the kala, the bride. By the way, you may be thinking I'm making jokes, but these are actually real customs, just to let you know. So make sure you practice tonight, Breno. Right foot first. When the rabbi calls the kala, the bride, with the words, Blessed is she who comes in the name of the Lord. The groom steps forward and brings his bride under the chuppah, and she circles him three or seven times, depending on the community. This is a very ancient custom. Why does the bride circle the groom? Our rabbis offer several explanations. Some rabbis have viewed the bride encircling the groom as a kind of prophetic imagery of a day to come when God's word would be fulfilled in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 22, or 21 in the Hebrew, which states, Adonai has created a new thing on the earth. A woman shall go around a man. Other rabbis suggest that the bride circling the groom is a reminder is a reminder as a circle is complete that the groom is made complete by the bride's entry into his life would you agree with that breno she brings wholeness to his existence before stepping under the chupa the groom was a pulga gufa a half a person Another rabbinic explanation is that by the bride circling the groom, she creates an invisible wall 
The Talmud teaches, whoever lives without a wife lives without a wall. The new bride is seen as a protective wall for her husband, keeping him from foolishness and guarding him from evil influences. Breno, you should take this to heart. Rachel is there to protect you from foolishness and harm. See her as an invisible wall in your life. As a kind of variation of this explanation, some rabbis view the bride circling the groom as the bride's statement that the groom is hers and hers alone. It's like circling with the wagons, right? He is set apart by the Lord for her. They alone share that circle. In other words, her circling is not an invisible wall of protection, but an invisible wall of consecration. Finally, other rabbis suggest that the bride circling the groom is a reminder that on her way to the chuppah, she has left her mother and father as the Lord commands and established a new circle of relationship in her life. Now her husband is at the center of her attention. And her parents, while still the object of her love and respect, are more on the periphery. A new family circle has been created. Why does this circling imagery What does this circling imagery teach us about walking with God? In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord says to Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride, you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. I would like to suggest that the imagery of the bride circling around the groom should remind us that we who are members of God's bride, we who are members of Israel and the body of Messiah, are called to make the chatan, the groom, Yeshua, the center of our attention. But is Yeshua the center of our lives? Do we circle around him, or do we expect him to circle around us? Let me ask that again. Do we circle around him, or do we expect him to circle around us? Let's recommit ourselves this morning to making Yeshua the center of our lives. And this brings us to my third and final point. You will never be the same again. At the end of the Jewish wedding ceremony, this, this ceremony that is so filled with blessing, it is traditional for the groom to step on a glass and shatter it. There are various explanations of this custom, including the view that the breaking of the glass tempers our joy with the reminder that we are in mourning over the destruction of the temple until the Messiah comes or returns. But the explanation for the broken glass that I like the most is that in the same way that the pieces of glass 
cannot be put together again, so too the bride and the groom can never return to their previous way of life as two unrelated people. They are forever changed. They have become basar echad, one flesh through marriage. The breaking of the glass signifies the start of a new chapter in their lives, a new adventure together forever. The mystery of marriage, of the two becoming one, reflects a mystery of the union that we experience with God when we make teshuvah, when we make a resolution to turn from our sins and become followers of Yeshua. From that point on, we are no longer who we once were. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he is a, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We might try to return to the life that we had before we met the groom with the big G, but we can never put the pieces of our life back together again as they were, though some waste their time and energy trying. This is because we are changed. We are now one with the Lord. Some of us don't believe that we have changed. We are always looking back at our previous way of life as though driving while looking in the rear-view mirror. This is a sure way to wreck our lives. I want to encourage us this morning that if we have encountered the living God, if we have entered into a relationship with Him through Yeshua the Messiah, the glass of our previous life has shattered, and we will never be the same again. Breno and Rachel, tomorrow the two of you will become basar echad, one flesh. Remember that the numerical value of the Hebrew word for love is 13. This is the same as the numerical value of the Hebrew word echad, which means one. God's love brought you two together. And remaining in God's love will keep you two together. Through your love for one another and the covenant that you make with each other before the Lord tomorrow, you will become one as husband and wife. Because of God's love, you will never be the same again. This morning we have talked about the blessing of a Jewish wedding. And I had three points. First, God is a matchmaker. Second, do you want to hear about some really cool customs? And third, you will never be the same again. Let's pray. Avinu Sheba Shemayim, our Father in heaven. We thank you for this wonderful tradition, this custom of the Jewish wedding that you gave us, Lord. 
and all the blessings and all the, all the enrichment that it, it provides us, Lord. We pray that tomorrow that Breno and Rachel will just be surrounded by your presence, that before all of their friends and family who are able to come to their wedding, and before you, O oh God, and before your angels in heaven who may be assembling at that very wedding, may that marriage covenant that they make, O oh God, be something that binds them together in love for all eternity. May they have the best marriage that anyone could ever ask for. And we as, as witnesses, Lord, we stand before you and say, Oh God, show us how we can be a blessing to them. In the mighty and precious name of Yeshua, we pray. Amen.